as we come to look at this chapter this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together, to hear you speak to us uh, about yourself, your character, uh, but also what it means to live as your people in this world, what it means to fear you. And we pray this morning that uh, we will encounter you in your words and that uh, having heard what you say, that we'll live our lives in the light of it for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, suffering has a way of uh, focusing for us on what are the big issues of life, what are the important issues. So often we live our lives, if you're like me, distracted by the little issues. Uh, uh, when we make decisions, you know, they're, they're often we think they're big, but they're really trivial. You know, where should I go on holidays? Uh, where should I, um, or should I upgrade my computer? It's not working so well at the moment. Or uh, should I upgrade the car? If I do that, do I need a car? What kind of car? You know, we spend our lives worrying about trivial issues, or making pondering and 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 uh, and worrying about these trivial issues in life. But when a loved one dies, when we're diagnosed with a debilitating disease or a disability, suddenly we're confronted with much more important questions, aren't we? We start asking the question, well, what's life about? Why am I here? What's death? Will death be the end? We're reminded of our own mortality when loved ones die. And where is God in all of this is one of the big questions particularly for believers, but non-believers even struggle with this question too. When there's sickness or life doesn't work out the way we might be expecting it to work out, what is God doing? Where is God in all of this? See, the book of Job, I think, raises these big questions for us. So often, as I said, we get caught up in the rat race, the Twitter, the, you know, the triviality of the world we get distracted from thinking about the important questions or we just kind of live without thinking too much at all. We just kind of get caught in that groove and just keep going. But when life takes an unexpected turn, that's when we, we, we're forced to think about these bigger issues. Um, in my own family, I had my youngest son was uh, struck down with a debilitating disease last year, a uh, disease called Graves' disease that is an autoimmune disease that the body starts eating away itself, fighting itself, and he was wasting away, and we didn't even realise it and, until uh, a medical friend pointed it out. And, um, and fortunately, we're very thankful that he's made a, a full recovery. He's still on medication, but uh, that kind of issue rocks you, doesn't it? Uh, when what you think is working out doesn't work out. And um, uh, this is what happened to the man Job in a much bigger way. Um, he loses virtually everything in his life. Uh, he had everything, wealth, health, family, and yet in a very short space of time he loses it all, his possessions, his family, his health. He's, he is struck with a debilitating disease. And at the end of chapter 2 of Job, he's sitting there in the city dump, effectively, scraping his sores with a bit of pottery and uh, wanting to know the reason why. And as he sits there in the city dump, his three friends come to him and they claim to have all the answers. They claim to know why he's suffering like he does. And in, a, in the book of Job, up until chapter 27, essentially what the book is to that point is this debate between Job and his three friends. 
debating why all of this disaster has come upon Job. Um, Now, what they're essentially debating is the reason why. What they're debating is uh, the purpose behind these events. Why has God allowed these things to happen to Job? And when we ask those questions of why do we suffer, what we're really asking for is what the Bible calls wisdom. Um, This understanding of the way the world works. We're looking for an explanation that makes sense of the circumstances of life. The Bible calls this wisdom, understanding, knowledge. We're looking to understand God's purposes in all of this. And it's perhaps when we suffer that we're no more acutely aware of our lack of wisdom. Um, We don't understand why so many times. Now, Job's friends came to him and they claimed to know why. They claimed to have wisdom They're quick to offer their explanations, but none of them really do understand. In a sense, the debate wears its way out. The three friends are reduced to to silence at this point because in the end they each lacked wisdom. They claimed to know God's mind, but they didn't because they weren't God's. They lacked that explanation of Job's circumstances that made sense. And it's with this, kind of, this, this debate, I think one of the reasons it runs for 27 chapters is because it shows that human wisdom eventually runs out. Um, uh, it doesn't have all the answers to our worlds. We don't know why. But then we have this wonderful chapter in chapter 28 that I want to look at this morning. It's a little bit difficult in the, in the book to know who actually speaks this chapter. Uh, whether it's Job himself who speaks it, lots of commentators and people think Job. This is a, a, another. This is a speech of Job, or the other alternative is that it's actually the, the the narrator, the person who's telling us the story of Job, has inserted this poem about wisdom at a key moment in the book, and uh, and, and and anticipates many of the themes that are going to be resolved by the end of the book. I think it's more that's the case. When, you look at, when we look at some of the things, I think Job's not in the right frame of mind to be saying some of the things that are said by this poem. So my own personal view is that it's not Job saying these words, but the person who's telling us about the story of Job. But you'll find uh, that's a debated point. But um, either way, it's a crucial chapter in the book. And it offers perspective on Job's situation. It offers perspective on suffering in general. And it's a poem that answers this question, where can wisdom be found? Where can understanding be found? Where can we find the sense of what Job has been through? And this poem begins with a wonderful portrayal of humanity's skill, particularly humanity's skill in mining, which makes it appropriate uh, for us here in Australia, isn't it? The the mining boom that we're told about. uh, mining is so much of a part of our economy. Mining was part of the ancient world as well. Um, Bildad was the last of Job's friends to speak back in chapter 5. And as he finishes his speech, he likens humanity to a maggot or a worm. Um, uh, not a very high view of humanity, is it? Just a maggot or a worm. But, but here in this poem, it's a different perspective on humanity. Mankind in all their skill and ingenuity, the, poets, the poem says mankind is a marvel 
Um, look at chapter 1. Let, let me read it again. There's a mine for silver, a place where gold is refined, iron's taken from the earth, copper's smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackened darkness. You get the, the mining imagery that's being worked out here. Far from human dwellings, they, they cut down a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they, they dangle and sway. And the earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. See, here's the poet is telling us about the ingenuity of humanity. All our skill that is used to get beneath the earth's surface down to where those uh, you know, treasures are hidden. Uh, there's a little image, you know, cutting down the shaft and then kind of you can imagine the miner dangling on the rope, swinging back and forth as they go down, down, down into the depths of the earth to bring up the nuggets of gold and the sapphires and the, the precious stones. So this poem begins by, as I said, celebrating the ingenuity of humanity to be able to... Um, manipulate the earth, which is what wisdom is about too, the skill for understanding the way the world works and, and using this for your ends. Um, now if this poem was being written today, we might also celebrate some of our uh, incredible technological discoveries, uh, discoveries that really take your breath away, that the discoveries in space research, and the things that are being discovered even in our time, uh, new planets and new solar systems and, and all these discoveries travelling into space, uh, different galaxies or the medical technology that is around these days, pacemakers, ultrasound, uh, one of the discoveries in Sydney of the bionic ear. Um, we live close to where the, they make those things, give people hearing. A friend of mine, his daughter was born deaf and has been given one of these ears that enables her to hear. Amazing. Uh, the genetic engineering that scientists are able to do, the medicines, or if we think about the computer technology that we've seen in recent years uh, that races at such a fast pace and things just, uh, you know, the speed of the technology is just mind blowing. Um, when I was a kid, I used to watch the show Get Smart, you know, with Maxwell Smart, and the idea that you would have a phone in your shoe was just amazing, wasn't it? That you could make a phone call from your shoe uh, or mobile. Um, <laughs> uh, and yet we do it. We carry our phones around with us in our pockets, don't we? Humans have made discoveries that have transformed our lives. You know, my son, I, I mentioned his sickness last year. He just takes a tablet now that, uh, that keeps that illness at bay. Who discovered that? You know, what, a, what an incredible... So many of the medicines that many of us take uh, improve our lives, don't they? The, 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 the ingenuity to, 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 to understand the way that our bodies work and, and find the, the, the drugs that will make those differences. They've transformed our lives. We seem to be able to, to master the world like no other being, no other, no, other, no other creature on our planet can do what human beings can do. And so if that was true in Job's day, and that's the point of the poem, how much truer is it today? Uh, the poem continues in chapter 28, verse 7. Uh, comparing to other creatures on the earth, uh, no bird of prey, you know, the mighty eagle, 
Uh, no bird of prey knows the hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen the way to wisdom. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion prowls there. People assault, it is people who assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers. They bring hidden things to light. See, that's what human beings can do. And yet, and yet, you've got to ask the question, don't you, for all of our ingenuity, for all of our technological advances, for all of our mastery of the world, are human beings any wiser? With all the the technological gadgets that fill our lives and the, the huge increase in our standard of living, are human beings any wiser than the ancients? Have we found wisdom? Are we more at harmony with our worlds? Are we closer to understanding the meaning and purpose of life? As a humanity, I think we'd have to say on any realistic assessment, probably no. Because as we are all aware, there is a dark side to all this technology as well, isn't there? The internet that brings instant communication around the world also pumps pornography into so many homes. Genetic research saves lives but also kills unborn children. 30 years of aid into Africa has done little to improve the poverty of that country and contributing to the poverty is the AIDS pandemic that continues to race out of control with medicines being restricted to those who can pay. Then there's the issue of greenhouse emissions and climate change which you know the, ra- the debate rages on as to to what extent humanity is involved in these things, but the argument is that human technology contributes to it. The clever equations that the banks used to write up their profits have now multiplied debts across the globe with many of the the world's economies hanging on the cliff, about to go over, we're told. And so for all of our technological mastery of the world... Are we any closer to living more harmoniously in the world with one another and with the world itself? And I would have to say that any realistic assessment, you'd have to say no. We may even be more, uh, well, less, less wise in a sense. For our increase in standard of living has gone up, 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 but so also has the increase in family breakdown, domestic violence, depression, divorce, Those rates are higher than ever. And yet the quest for wisdom continues. Back to the poem in verse 12. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And the poem goes on to say that for all of humanity's skill and ingenuity, wisdom just seems unattainable. That understanding of life that explains the world we live in just... We just don't seem to be able to get to it as humanity. So pick it up from verse 13. Uh, No mortal, no human being comprehends its worth. It, It can't be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not within me. It can't be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of a fear. 
with precious onyx or sapphires, neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold, coral and jasper are not worthy of mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot uh, compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. See, the mining that brought all these treasures to light, you might amass all the treasure, but it still won't buy you wisdom. See, what the poem is saying is no matter how wise, sorry, no matter how clever you are, that, and, and mankind has certainly demonstrated their great cleverness, that won't necessarily make you wise. No matter how many degrees you have, that won't make you wise. No matter how wealthy you are, that won't make you wise. Wisdom can't be bought, we're told, even with pure golds. See, what it's saying is no matter how wealthy you are, that's no measure of how uh, harmoniously you can live with the world's. See, this poem is in a sense presenting us with a, a paradox, a great paradox. Wisdom is so valuable that it must be found. We have to find it as human beings. And yet, at the same time, the quest for wisdom seems unattainable. No matter how uh, intelligent you might be, no matter how wealthy you might be, you just don't seem to be able to get it. If you were able to collect all the riches in the world, you would still have insufficient wealth to purchase wisdom. And yet wisdom must be found. The question is asked again in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Uh, And in the context of the book of Job, this is what the people have been looking for. This is what Job has been looking for. This is what the friends have been looking for. They've been looking for this wisdom that explains the world from God's perspective. And yet... This is hidden to humanity. Look at verse 21. It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the air. Destruction and death say only a rumour of it has reached our ears. See, there's only a, even if, destruction and death, even if you were to go to the other side to die, you would, There's only a rumour of it there, and even if you went to the other side, death, it's no good to you if you found out about wisdom there because there's no coming back uh, to this life as we have it today anyway. Um, uh, See, the search for wisdom continues in the poem, but it's a search that seems futile to this point. And here we are 3,000 years after this poem was written, and we have to say, are we any the wiser? And yet... Before we give up in complete despair, uh, the poem takes an unexpected turn. Because the poet says, wisdom does exist. Uh, Verse 23, God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. See, there is a way to wisdom. You can't find it through human efforts, through human achievements. You can't find this wisdom by human technology, by wealth, by university degrees. But God knows where this wisdom comes from. He knows the way to it. Verse 24, God views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, he made a decree for the rain. He made a path for the thunderstorm. He looked at wisdom 
He appraised it. He confirmed it. He tested it. See, the poem's saying human beings are unable to get this wisdom. But God, is no effort for him. In fact, God sits over this wisdom. He is the wise God. He is the one who created wisdom. He is the one who created this world by wisdom. Wisdom is his. He appraises it. He sits over it. There is wisdom. So we need a, it's not a futility. There is a wisdom in our world. There is a wisdom of our world. There is a wisdom, but it's hidden. God knows what this wisdom is. He knows why things happen. He knows why loved ones die. He knows why we're struck with debilitating diseases. He knows why the world is like it is. He knows why there's warfare around our planet. He knows the answers to these things. We may not know. But God does. A couple of months ago in Silicon Valley, I don't know whether you came across this story, the the great minds of America were debating this very question of where, well, they didn't put it in these terms of where wisdom can be found, but they were arguing whether technology would would, uh, solve more of humans' problems in the next 25 years than it had done in the last 25 And uh, the account of this that I read was by uh, a historian, Niall Ferguson, not a Christian man as far as I know, but he was invited to attend this conference of the great minds and he wrote a fascinating article. Uh, He's not as optimistic as many at the conference were. Uh, And he notes how in the world at the moment, how North Africa and the Middle East all have the ingredients in place for a really big war. Now, this he was writing several months ago, um, uh, not aware of the events we've seen in the last couple of weeks, but he, he argues that economic volatility, ethnic tension, a youthful population and the decline of America in the region in the Middle East all is making for a huge vacuum. And he says, who's going to fill this vacuum? That's what's going to be played out in that area in the coming uh, years. Uh, there's a nuclear Iran a neo-Ottoman Turkey, Arab Islamists led by the Muslim Brotherhood. He argues that all these are competing interests who are going to go into that area and uh, whoever comes out, to to fight it out to see who comes on top, but whatever happens, it's not likely to happen without a lot of bloodshed. And his conclusion, the conclusion of his article was, he says, it's a dangerous world. Ask anyone who works in the world of intelligence to list the biggest threats we face to our security and they'll likely include bioterrorism, cyber war and nuclear proliferation. That's our technology, isn't it? The greatest threats to humanity are the very things that we have created. Bioterrorism, cyber war, nuclear proliferation. What these have in common, of course, and I'm quoting uh, Niall Ferguson here, is, is the way modern technology can empower radicalised or just plain crazy individuals and groups. It must be heartwarming, he, he writes, to believe that Facebook is ushering in a happy, clappy world where everyone friends everyone else and we all surf the net in peace, insert smiley face. Uh, but he says, he concludes, I'm afraid history makes me what he calls a, a depressimist. And there's not an app, there's not a gene that can cure that. Uh, So he looks at history, and history says that we are not, as human beings, able to create the perfect worlds. I like his assessment and his honesty. 
And if we left the poem there, that might be where we finish. But that's not where the poem finishes. We don't need to be depressimists because there is more to the story. God has wisdom. He sits over it, but he also has the answers. He has the perspective on our world that makes sense. He knows why there is suffering in our world like Job's. We cannot find the answer in our world, but the answer is not hidden to God. But having said that, that doesn't mean that we can't be wise as human beings. There is a human wisdom. Verse 28, he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. See, wisdom for human beings ultimately is found in fearing the Lord, fearing our maker, fearing our creator. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, is a phrase that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer not to a a cowering fright that's paralysed by fear before who God is, but if we know who God is, then there needs to be a measure of fear. But fundamentally it's talking about a humility that recognises that we as human beings collectively and we individually as human beings are not gods. And so we need to be humble and recognise who he is and put our trust in him. It's a, it's a healthy fear that recognises who God truly is. See, I think what this poem is teaching us is that it, there's two types of wisdom. There's God's wisdom that is hidden to us so often as human beings. Job's friends claimed to know the mind of God, but they didn't. They were arrogant. They were proud. But there's another kind of wisdom for human beings, and that is the fear of the Lord, the, 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 the wisdom that recognises that so often God's ways are hidden to us in this world. But true wisdom for humans comes in putting your faith in God and living a life that shuns evil that shuns the evil one, that seeks to serve God and serve your other human beings, serve your fellow humanity. And wisdom for us comes from trusting God and obeying him, even in the midst of turmoil and Middle East out of control and personal suffering and whatever it is, the turmoil that comes our way. True wisdom is not found in having all the answers, not in multiplying university degrees, True wisdom is comes in trusting the one who does have all wisdom, trusting in God. And as we wrestle with our agonised questions about why there is evil and suffering and pain, especially when we experience it personally, whatever our suffering is, God directs us away from that and onto himself. He doesn't give us all the answers we might like in this life, but he beckons us to bow before him and to be reminded that he is the one who holds all things in his mighty hands. The poem finishes there, but the Bible doesn't finish there, does it? Because I think Jesus clarifies even more for us God's ways. We can know more than Job. We know more than the ancients because God has revealed to us more. And the New Testament, as we had read from us, for us from Colossians, testifies that Jesus is wisdom from God. In Colossians 2 verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. Now, we may not still have all the answers for why there's suffering in the world, but Jesus' death and resurrection gives us assurance that God is good. Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that God suffers in the person of his Son in this world. Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that God does something about evil and wickedness in our world by dying for the consequences of that. And Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that one day God will do away with the evil and suffering in our worlds. See, what Jesus does too is humbles us in our pride and brings us back to God, our maker. Jesus is the one who is the prince of peace, who is the one who shows us how to use technology. He's not anti-technology, but he shows us the path to using this technology for good in the service of others not in service of self, which is where so many of the problems come. Jesus is the one who brings peace, doesn't he? He is the one who will bring peace in the Middle East as he enables warring people to to see what truly matters and put aside past atrocities and hurt and and forgive and, and he can reconcile enemies. He does what no technology can ever do. Jesus is the one who brings peace and many of us testify to that, don't we, in our own lives that have been turned around. If you don't know of the peace that Jesus can bring, then speak to someone who's here who who is a believer. Uh, Speak to Joel or um, uh, one of the elders or speak to myself afterwards. We'd love to tell you how you can know Jesus. Because in our world, the highest wisdom of all is found in trusting him trusting him through all the circumstances of life, living in a relationship with him where you fear God and shun evil and and know forgiveness that has come through his death and the hope of glory. That's what we live for, isn't it? If we're serving him. And I think that's where this poem ultimately leads us to. It points us to Jesus, the wisdom from God that's found in him. Still not having all the answers, but knowing the one who does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of your words that, even though it was written 3,000 years ago, still speaks of the world in which we live, still speaks of the, the struggles that we have as human beings living in this world, still speaks about the crises and the tensions that we have and our lack of wisdom. Thank you for the way, too. It points us to Jesus. We thank you for the, the Saviour the one who reconciles us to you and to one another. Father, we pray that we might trust him. Humble us in our pride. Help us to keep looking to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.